The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning. It sure is good to see all of you. So glad you are here. Thanks for being here with us. Excited to look at God's Word with you. We are going to read again from chapter 7 of the book of Revelation. So if you want to turn in there, uh, Revelation is an easy book to find. Just go to the end. And uh, we're going to be in Revelation again, chapter 7. In this passage, and we looked at it last week, we see this incredible vision of our future, the future of those who believe the gospel, where we're going, what our Lord God is going to do for us. We're going to revisit that this morning. So again, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 7. We're going to look just at verses 9 to 12. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 12. This is God's word. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Ask for God's help. Father, I want to thank you so much for your word, that you are a communicating God, a speaking God, and you're showing us the truth of who you are, of who we are, what it means to know you. Lord, we thank you for your people that we can gather together this morning under your word to hear your voice and to learn to see the world as you have created it, as as you have defined it and to be the kind of people you call us to be. Lord, I pray that as we look at this text, you would please help me to teach it faithfully and clearly. And Lord, I pray that for all of us, as we encounter your word and the world that we live in, Lord, that you give us wisdom, humility, truth, love, and courage so that we might glorify Jesus Christ in everything that we do. We pray this in his name. Everybody said... Amen. So our mission here at Fountain of Life reads like this. Grounded in the gospel, we gather to grow in the gospel and scatter to spread the gospel for the glory of God. Did you see a word repeated there a couple of times? Gospel, gospel, gospel. It's what we love. It's what we want to emphasize. The gospel is the good news of Jesus who he is and what he's done. And we know that God is most glorified in us as we trust and love that gospel. The gospel defines who we are. That's what we mean by grounded. We want to see our our identity as being unified to Jesus Christ by grace through faith. It grounds us as who we are. It also defines our community life. We want to gather to come together to grow in knowing Jesus. We want to grow in the gospel as God's people. And also, we desire that others would come to know and love this beautiful gospel, that they could see Jesus Christ and know his salvation. We want that all people might be satisfied in God's goodness through Christ. That's our mission. Now, of course, we don't all always live this out perfectly. I've never lived it out perfectly, but it remains the aim, doesn't it? It remains the aim to be grounded in that, growing in it, spreading it. We've been studying through this amazing book of Revelation. And last week, we saw a vision of the future for all who love this gospel. In fact, we saw a picture of the success of the gospel, of the triumph of the gospel. We heard what you could even call the song of the gospel. Did you see 
the beauty of this victory, of this success? Did you hear the song? Let's just listen again, Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes, singing salvation belongs to our God. This is an amazing sight, isn't it? It's an amazing sight. Can you imagine this most massive crowd? And did you see that it is full of incredible diversity? Every culture, ethnicity, language welcomed, noted, distinct, valued. Our God loves unity and diversity, doesn't he? He's a triune God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, distinct in person, unified in essence as God, one God. And his heaven is full of this unity and diversity that all the peoples of the world come with one voice, this one unity to be delighted in worshiping God through Jesus Christ for his salvation. And so they sing that song, salvation belongs to our God. This means you did it. You kept your promises. You saved us from our sins. You brought us through tribulation. You brought us home. That's our future. That's where we're going. The gospel will succeed. People from every nation will sing the song together. I can't wait to do it. I can't wait to be there. Can you? That's where we're going. But I want now to think, how do we arrive at that target? How do we arrive at that place of such unity in worship? How do we get there? How does, maybe we could ask it like this, how does that song have its echo in our lives today? So next week, I'm going to revisit this text again. I want us to think about how all the nations get there. How do all the nations get to the throne room of heaven to sing the song of salvation? How do they get the gospel? We're going to think of our mission as a church. The mission of the church, which is to take the gospel to all peoples. We're going to look at that next week. But this morning, I want to look at an additional echo of the song. And that is, I'm going to take the risk of thinking with you what it means to apply the gospel to the issue of race and critical theory. So that should be exciting, right? Um, I want to think about it with you. Because did you notice, right? Did you notice the view of, Revela of what we see here in Revelation and how it's not the view we see in this life? Did you see the juxtaposition between incredible diversity and absolute unity versus what we experience here? It's a striking, it's a striking difference. And there's this dream in Revelation over and against the evils done to one another, one people to another. You know, I've been blessed to travel quite a bit, several different countries, and I want to tell you, Racism in some form exists everywhere, everywhere. It's a scar on every page on human, of human history. And the Bible's not naive about this, is it? Is the Bible naive? Read the book of Esther and what will you see in that book? You will see the Gentile attempt to exterminate the Jewish people. Read the Gospels, the accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. What will you see? You will see deep animosity and hatred between Jew and Samaritan. The Samaritans were the, the problem with society. They're, they're dirty. And so there's, there's this religious and racist ostracism between Jew and Samaritan. You see it in the Gospels. Read the book of Acts, and you'll see this incredible struggle for the early church. Do you know the story? The church began mainly Jewish, and the gospel began to go to different ethnicities in this struggle. of What does it mean to embrace these people who see life so differently, but to embrace them because of the unity we have in Christ? The Bible's not naive, it's a, it's a struggle, it's difficult. And church history, right, is far from clean when it comes to racism. There, of course, there's been stories of heroic successes, heroic successes. And there's pictures of, of horrific failure. 
Did you know that? One massive failure was the compromise of the church in participating with race-based slavery and it's all its implications at the beginning of our nation. So many Christians went along with that occurrence and called it blessed. Our country is still dealing with the echo of that reality in many ways, isn't it? Dealing with the echo of it. I appreciate what apologist Neil Shenvey wrote. He says, It should be obvious that 346 years of slavery, exclusion from constitutional rights, black code laws, and Jim Crow will severely impede, if not outright, destroy a people. Descendants of slaves and others who are systematically brutalized and disenfranchised naturally feel the residual effects of this oppression. These effects appear in a number of categories where African Americans have experienced significant deficits, including civic support, relationships, educational attainment and opportunities, vocational attainment and opportunities, and inherited wealth and resources. It's just, it's just there. Now, it's obvious in our country. I think it's obvious in this wonderful country, there's been wonderful improvement in many, many, many ways. And we've all experienced that, and we live in that but do you think racism still exists? 2003 Harvard study called Mark of a Criminal Record, it studied job interview callbacks. Whites with a criminal record received a 20% higher response rate when compared to blacks with no criminal record. There's a 2018 poll 28% of Republicans and 12% of Democrats thought interracial marriage was morally wrong. Another recent survey said that 34%, this one hurts me the most, of white evangelicals would oppose a close relative marrying a black person. I've, I've officiated a couple of interracial marriages. Did we forget that our only hope is that Jesus Christ himself has an interracial marriage? So what's the answer to racial enmity? Well, I'm just going to answer that real easy for you in one sermon, right? <laughs> well, it's not that easy. But we need to ask the question. We need, to, we need to ask, where is truth? Where is hope in this? How do we get to this target in Revelation 7 where all the peoples are unified in worship of Jesus Christ. Many today in, in, in trying to answer that question are looking to something called critical theory for how to understand and address these issues. And the more I've looked into this, the more I think critical theory is just everywhere. It's in universities, in scholarship, it's showing itself in pop culture, in activism, and it's being applied, trying to be applied to many aspects of life like gender, colonialism, and especially race. It has roots in Marxist and postmodern philosophy, and it has become a worldview, a comprehensive story of life. So you might say to me, why are you bringing this up in a sermon? Well, this is why because it's in competition with the truth of the gospel. It's in competition with the truth of the gospel. And so we remember our mission, grounded in what? The gospel. We, we gather to grow in what? The gospel. And, and scatter to spread the gospel for, for everyone as much as we can, for the glory of God. So anytime something wants to come and compete with the gospel for giving a narrative on how there can be love and unity and salvation. Well, well, we want to have a look at that. I want to try to unpack just the simple basics of critical theory and how it's working so that you can see how it cannot keep its promises and how the gospel is infinitely better how the gospel is the thing that will take us to that picture one day in Revelation 7 when all the peoples 
are worshiping Jesus Christ in unity and truth. So um, just a few marks of full disclosure. I'm no expert on this. I'm mainly indebted to two sources, and I feel like I should tell you that ahead of time so I'm not plagiarizing, <laughs> okay? Number one is a man named Dr. Neil Shenvey. He is an apologist. I've really appreciated some of his, um, some of his lessons, his teachings. Also a book, and I'll show you the cover of this book. It's a book called Cynical Theories by Pluckrose and Lindsay. Now this book is especially interesting. It's, it's a little difficult in that it's academic, but it's especially interesting in that its authors are not Christian. They see themselves as liberal in kind of the classical understanding of the word. But they assert that critical theory is everywhere, that it's dangerous for society, and they even call it a quasi-religion. I've really appreciated their work. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at four main principles of critical theory. I want to ask what we can learn from critical theory, and then I want to remember the better theory, the gospel. So here we go. Buckle up. First main principle of critical theory. Number one, critical theory asserts that humanity is fundamentally divided into these tribe-like groups that relate together mainly as oppressor and oppressed. I think that's essential to understand. Critical theory asserts that human, humanity is fundamentally divided into tribe-like groups that relate together mainly as oppressed or as oppressor and as oppressed. Here's a quote from D'Angeli. D'Angelo and, and uh, Sensoy, they're critical theorists. They write, for every social group, there is an opposite group. Did you hear that? And that, that, just put that in your pocket. For every social group, there's an opposite group. The primary groups we name here are race, class, gender, sexuality, ability, status, religion, and nationality. Consequently, sexism, racism, classism, heterosexism, are specific forms of oppression. So if you're in one group, and that's the majority group, you're oppressing the other group. And we're fundamentally divided that way. Uh, this description, this narrative of, of your tribe defines you. That's the group you're in. And some tribes oppress others, others are oppressed. But you are one of those. There's, there's no middle ground. Important implication to note here. In this view of the world, both the universal and the individual are denied. Here's what I mean. Here's where we see some postmodern influence. The universal is denied in that there's no longer one grand story that can tie us all together. They would see that kind of meta-narrative as a power grab. It's a way to oppress. And so there's not one story that can unite us all together. There's just the story of the groups. And so it denies the universal. Secondly, it, de it denies the individual, and here's how. If you're a member of the oppressing group and you disagree with critical theory, well, let me tell you why. That's because you're blind to the way your tribe oppresses, okay? You, there's no room for the individual who thinks, no, you're, you're in the oppressor tribe. Also, if you're in the tribe that is oppressed, and you disagree with critical theory, and by the way, there are many, many, many people like that. Well, that's just because you've internalized the other tribe's oppression of your own. You've, you've bought the oppression. And so you're stuck in your group. There's no way out. And in that, it denies the universal. It denies the individual. That's a core idea. Humanity is fundamentally divided into tribe-like groups that relate mainly as oppressor and oppressed. Now, as I describe that to you, I hopefully, hopefully you're, already, you're already testing this with your, your Christian worldview. Is that, the description of hum, fundamental, is that the fundamental description of humanity? Second thing critical theory asserts. Critical theory asserts that oppression occurs. You ready to feel, you know, academic, okay? Oppression occurs through hegemonic ideology, Okay? Wow, that's why I get paid the big money, right? You use words like this. 
hegemonic ideology. Well, hegemony, it has to do with dominance. Hegemonic means this group is in control. They have the power. Hegemonic. This one tribe, this one group especially, is in control. They're oppressing the others. Ideology. This means the nature of the oppression is now in the use of language and systems and culture. So traditionally, right, oppression would be seen as like actions or deeds of cruelty or um, explicit abuse, breaking the law. We, we would know what oppression was. You could, you could name it. But now, no, it's different. It's more broad. The whole thing, language, system, cultures, that's what ideology is about there. The ideology is now oppressive. So I'll say it again. Critical theory asserts oppression occurs through hegemonic, that's the group in power, ideology and their ideas that they're giving to the world. Let me give you an example of this. Okay. To a critical theorist, the ultimate tribe of oppression is white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, able-bodied people. Okay. That's the the key criminal element. That's the oppressing tribe. Now, you're probably realizing you could have some of the marks of that group, but not all, okay? That would take us into the idea of intersectionality and have mercy. I'm going to skip that one this morning, okay? But you've got this idea of this hegemonic, that means they have the power group, oppressing through ideology. Well, what does this look like? I'll give you a couple of examples. For some time, the National Museum of African American History and Culture, Culture had a document regarding whiteness. Okay? Uh, part of what the document said was, since white people still hold most of the institutional power in America, we have internalized some aspects of white culture, including people of color. So do you see that? Who, who has the power? White people have the institutional power. Okay? So we've internalized some of the aspects of white culture. Now, what does whiteness include in the rest of that document? Would you like to know? Whiteness includes in that document the nuclear family. Rational thinking like the scientific method. Hard work and holding to monotheism. That's whiteness, according to that document. To a critical theorist, it is those things, among many more, that are the ideological vehicles for oppression. Those ideas are oppressive because they're white. They're coming from the hegemonic ideology. Do you see? That museum did remove the document after some criticism, but here's another document, another example that's just like it. Until late September, a similar idea was found on the Black Lives Matter website regarding what they believe and what they're about. Here's one of the phrases that was on that page. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure the Western, uh, the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families in villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Now, let's be generous. Let's be humble. Can we support extended families supporting one another? Yeah. I need you. You need me. Can we support villages collectively caring for one another? Absolutely. But... Did you hear the language of disrupting the Western prescribed, what? Nuclear family. Do you see again, it's the same echo. The idea that the nuclear family is whiteness or Western and a vehicle of oppression. You'll notice something else in that paragraph. They want to care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers... Parents and children are comfortable. I felt like something was missing. Fatherhood. Fatherhood. Critical theory tends to see males and masculinity 
as a vehicle of oppression. And fatherhood didn't make the document. So they want to disrupt the nuclear family. Wow. So this is another example, I think, a blatant one, right, of seeing oppression occurring through hegemonic ideology. Hegemony, the group that has all the power with their ideas oppressing. Now, by the way, right, when we look at that, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family. I just want to make it clear, obviously, there are many, 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 many black people and people of other races who would strongly disagree with that, right? Strongly. This is critical theory talking, and a part of critical theory is it wants to represent everyone. But that doesn't mean it does. So I'm a sports fan, and I listen to sports talk radio. It's one of my vices. And I am familiar with this man named Marcellus Wiley. He's an ex-defensive lineman, and he's a black sports personality. And he was very critical of this aspect of Black Lives Matter on this reason, because he stated the nuclear family is so important for the success of everyone, and it was substantive for his own success. So it should be stated that as a, a black leader, he made that very clear. Because again, it's an illustration of how critical theory asserts that oppression occurs through hegemonic ideology. Ideas and structures. Two implications you've got to see here. Number one, because oppression is occurring through this hegemonic ideology, racism is normative and continual. According to critical theorists, racism is normative and continual. That means it is always and constantly occurring, never not occurring. This is one of, the, one of the things that's difficult with critical theory, okay? Because in critical theory, sometimes you'll have the same words that we're used to using, but they're filled with different meaning. So what if I said, hey, um, are you as a Christian against racism? I hope you would all say, God help us, yes. And I hope you would be willing to look in your, I mean, have you found all your sin yet? Have you, are you perfectly sanctified, Okay. Would you be willing to search your heart and see pride and bias that you haven't noticed before? Or do you think you're, you know, you've arrived? Okay. No, we're Christians. Like that gives us the freedom to consider that there could be sin in my life I haven't seen. I'm, I'll look for it. But it needs to be nameable sin. It needs to be something I can actually repent of. That's not the way critical theorists use the word racism. That's not what they're thinking of. They're thinking of these entire systems like the nuclear family. That's racist. I can't play at that point. I don't agree with that use of the word. Look what Pluckrose and Lindsay write. This is in that book, Cynical Theories. Pluckrose and Lindsay say, when critical race theorists speak of racism, they're not referring to prejudice on the grounds of race. That's what you and I are thinking of, right? But rather to, as they define it, a radicalized system that permeates all interactions in society, yet is largely invisible, except to those who experience it or who have been trained in proper critical methods that train them to see it. That's right. Here's a quote from Bruce and D'Angelo. These are critical theorists. They write, the question is not, did racism take place? For that is to be, what? Assumed. But rather, how did racism manifest in that situation? We can't do that. Another implication, not only that, according to a critical theorist, racism is normative and continual, according to a critical theorist, Constructive criticism is thereby impossible. Here's what I mean. Is fatherlessness, for instance, a desperate problem in many communities? It is. It's sociologically obvious. There are many, pe there are many scholars from all sorts of ethnicities who would say, yep. And yet, to a critical theorist, you might be being racist to say that, well, maybe part of the trouble with the community is fatherlessness. 
Oh no, you're being racist, you're oppressing with your hegemonic ideology. So what happens to constructive criticism or the ability to learn and to grow? Well, we can't do that. Why? Well, we're separated fundamentally, right, into these tribes, and oppression occurs through the ideology of the hegemonic group. All right, point number three. Point number three. According to a critical theorist, the lived experience of the oppressed tribe is the source of enlightened knowledge. The lived experience of the oppressed tribe is the source of enlightened knowledge. Here's what H. Charles Lawrence wrote. He said, The oppressed must learn to trust our senses, feelings, and experiences and to give them authority, even or especially in the face of dominant accounts of social reality that claim universality. So there's dominant accounts of social reality that claim universality. Maybe that could be uh, scholarly papers or, or the Bible or these big picture storylines. But what do the oppressed need to do, those who are in oppressed groups? The oppressed must learn to trust their own senses, feelings, and experiences and to give them authority, even or especially in the face of those accounts. Okay? So have you heard of the word um, or the idea of being woke? Okay? That's to come awake to the reality of the systems of oppression. Especially if you're in the oppressed group. It's to begin to understand how you're always being oppressed. And that story of that group's experience of oppression is the new authority for understanding life. It doesn't matter what the evidence might say. The story of the oppressed group is now authoritative. Now... A caveat. Should we, can we do better at listening to other people's stories with empathy? Come on, yes. Isn't this part of the problem? No sense of relationship or empathy. Should we listen to each other's stories? Do, do we always know what it's like for somebody else struggling in their position? Do we, do we know what it feels like? Is it valuable to learn and to ask and to relate and to care? Yes, it's Christ-like. It's Christ-like. Having said that, is it dangerous for this critical theory storyline of a certain group to become the all-encompassing authority no matter what? It's deeply dangerous. This is an important implication then. Critical theory enshrines relativism. Okay, it really does have postmodern roots. Language and even evidence in this view of the world is simply used as a power grab. It's not to bring common ground. Think about what language does. It's, it really is to bring common ground. It's to, to put us on the same page, to have the same ideas in our minds so that we can come together. But in postmodern thought especially, language is it's not to bring common ground, it's to oppress. And so... Language can only create ideology in that way. Look what some critical theorists say in regards to authority for knowledge. Here's Anderson and Collins. The idea that objectivity is best reached only through rational thought is a specifically Western and masculine way of thinking, one that we will challenge throughout this book. I was thinking of my very rational sisters in Christ and wondering what they would think of this. I was wondering how they would challenge that without rational thought. But this is, this is, this is enshrining relativism. I'll give you another one. This is by uh, Tawai Smith. She's a critical theorist when it comes to colonialism. She says, the term research is inextricably linked to European imperialism and colonialism. The word itself, research, is probably one of the dirtiest words in the indigenous world's vocabulary. Do you think honest research might help the world or the indigenous world? Yeah, we can't use it because it's not, it's not the authority anymore. We have a new authority. It's the lived experience of the oppressed group. Do you see how this is working? Here's my favorite, and I think some of my children might agree with Alan Bishop. He's a critical theorist. Are you ready for this? 
Western mathematics this secret of cultural imperialism. And all the kids in school said, amen. It's just all those serve as examples that the lived experience of the oppressed group becomes the authoritative knowledge. Okay, so what have we seen so far? Humanity is fundamentally divided into tribal groups that oppress and are oppressed. There's no way out. Oppression occurs through the ideology of the hegemonic group. They're teaching in their structures and systems, and so racism is always everywhere. And three, the lived experience of the oppressed group is the only authoritative knowledge. Those are the first three. Here's the fourth. That means ultimate salvation is social justice activism that leads to the liberation of the oppressed. Okay? So we need activism. Activism must expose and undercut the oppression. We've got to show where the oppression is in all these structures. And we've got, we've got to expose it, and then we want to undercut it. You know, here's, here's another difficulty in the conversation, right? There's a lot of debate on this in the Christian world right now. Should we, should we be involved in social justice? Well, doesn't a lot of that conversation depend on what you mean by social justice? Did you know that if I gossip about you after the service today, I have been socially unjust? Read Leviticus 19 and see if God cares about justice and social relationships. Let me assure you, he does. What's the second command? Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, the critical theorists don't mean that when they talk about social justice. They're talking about overthrowing the ideological oppression of the hegemony through activism. And I'm not sure that's always justice, are you? I have my doubts, so we need, we need such clarity. But critical theory is using the language of revolution more than that of reform. The goal is to overthrow the power of the oppressors, and sometimes the ends can justify the means. You won't hear a lot about forgiveness or reconciliation. There's just how can we take the power back. So those are the four things. I want to ask now, because we want to have a spirit of humility and gentleness, what can we learn from critical theory as we think about these things? What can we learn? Here's one. Group oppression does occur and is evil. Did you know that? Group oppression does occur and is evil. One group oppressing another group, that occurs. Read the book of Amos, and you'll see how God feels about it as he names it. The, the rich oppressing the poor. Read James. Read James and see what he says about the rich oppressing the poor. It occurs. We can learn this. Second, second thing to learn. Systems can promote injustice. Is it true? Can there be an unjust system? Yes. Yes. Um, to me, abortion is an obvious example if you want to push back. Third, the hegemony can oppress with ideology. Hegemony, the group in charge, ideology, their ideas, they can oppress. Uh, imagine trying to teach your daughters that beauty is more about character than appearance. That might be hard. Why? Because what do you see everywhere? Media. Magazines everywhere. What do you see? What are we told? Oh, beauty is about your external sensuality. The people in control, that, that's, that's always the message, okay? So, yes, the hegemony can oppress. And the fourth thing to remember is people's stories do matter. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 8. 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. What does that feel like to you? Should we care about other people's hurts and listen to them deeply, even if we don't agree at all? Yes. 
Be humble, be tender, be sympathetic. We don't know what it's like to be in that person's shoes. It would be loving to learn. So that's what we can learn from critical theory. What about where it goes wrong? Because you're going to have this conversation, I think, right, with friends and family members. You're going to see critical theory pop out in conversations and commercials and everything else. You're going to have these conversations. Where does it go wrong? You know, worldviews tend to have to answer the same questions. All worldviews have to answer these same questions. For Christianity, we like to draw it up like this, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, where did we come from and what are we here for? Fall, what's our problem? Redemption, how do we fix the problem? Restoration, what's the goal for the future, right? Every, every worldview has to answer those questions and I, just, I challenge you to, you fill in those blanks. How would you answer that? Okay. For a critical theorist, we know the fall, it's the oppression of the group in power. We know redemption, it's enlightened activism. And restoration, well, that's when power is removed from the oppressing group to the oppressed. But you know what's missing? Creation. Creation is missing. There's no God which why everything is so stuck in the horizontal. We're our own authorities. We're scrapping for power. Language is a weapon. There, because there's no ultimate truth. There's no ultimate hope. There's no vertical. And that means there's no gospel. Did you know, friends, that critical theory is yet another version of a religion of works? And there's no possibility of reconciliation or unity. So we need to remember the story of the gospel. Remember the story of the gospel. How do you answer, who are we and why are we here? There is a beautiful, glorious God who created all things good and made human beings in his image. And that's where I'm waiting for the big amen, right? He made human beings in his image. There are many ethnicities. I want to say there is one human race. And our experience is important, but it's not the ultimate authority. God's word is the authority for life and doctrine. The critical theorists are wrong when they reject the dom a dominant hegemony. And Christians are saying our lives are based on a dominant hegemony. You know what I mean? The hegemony, the people in charge. Who's your hegemony? <laughs> the triune God. <laughs> and he has written an ideology that defines life. And we say yes and amen. That's true and beautiful. That's our authority. God has created and designed us and he has spoken to us. And by the way, this I think is what makes real justice possible. It's what makes it possible. Moreover, from his word and from experience, we know that we have all sinned against him. Friends, it is our mistreatment of God that leads to the mistreatment of others. It's your mistreatment of God that leads to the mistreatment of others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is true for each one of us that our first problem is with God himself. We each are the oppressors. And that's true for each one of us, no matter our group or our background. It also means that there is one way and one way only for all people to be saved. And this is where we get to the good part. His name is Jesus. The eternal son of God took on human nature in order to meet our need. He lived the perfect life of obedience, fulfilling the standards of the law. He always loved the father. He always loved his neighbor. Did you see in the gospels when he says, I must go to Samaria. I must go to those people. I must. And he died on the cross in our place as the substitute, paying the debt we owe for our sins. 
He rose from the dead in victory and through faith alone, by grace alone, we receive what he has done freely as a gift. Jesus saves us from the penalty of our sin, the wrath we deserve, and the power of our sin, the slavery of our minds and hearts. We can be forgiven. We can be transformed to love God and our neighbor, all of them, according to his word. I want to conclude with the ideas here from Ephesians chapter 2. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul has something he wants the church in Ephesus to remember. And it's something we need to remember in this conversation. Look at 2 verse 12. He's talking to Gentiles and he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Kind of dark, kind of despairing. But look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Who's the hour? Jew and Gentile. Black and white. This tribe, that tribe. This group, that group. He is our peace who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There was a wall in the temple where basically there was a sign that said to Gentiles, this far and no farther, you can't come in. And Paul is saying that Jesus Christ on the cross, when he died for sins and when he rose from the dead, he obliterated that wall. And now the offer is for anyone who will look to Christ and trust in him, come on in. Come on in and come all the way in. And look what this does, verse 16. He did this that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Do you see? When you look at the gospel and realize you are saved by faith alone, is it your gender that makes you right with God? Or your expression of that gender? No. Uh, is it your economic status that makes you right with God? No. Is it your resume of really good deeds or religious experiences that makes you right with God? No. Is it how nice of a person you are, at least when you think of yourself in a positive light? No. Is it? And so on. Is it this? Is it that? And you're left. No. Nothing could make me right with God in myself. But Jesus makes me right with God. He lived the life. He died the death. He rose from the dead. And he gives it as a gift by grace through faith alone. If you believe that and you know that you've been brought in by faith alone, guess what happens? What if somebody else from that other tribe is also brought in by faith alone? Paul is saying we aren't just brought near to God in Christ. We are brought near to one another. In fact, he says, Jesus has killed the hostility on the cross. He made peace between all of his people. He accomplished it. It's our job now to live in it. This is incredible. Christians, do you remember this? What hostility are you holding in your heart?
Critical theory cannot come through on its promises. It always, always, always is stuck in the fight between oppressors and oppression. It's always stuck in revolting, breaking things down. And you are tagged in your tribe. There's not a lot of hope there. The gospel is different. The gospel is different. Do Christians always live out the gospel? <laughs> no. Okay. But does the gospel remain the truth and the hope and the source, the possibility for love, for unity, for reconciliation? Yes, it does. We're not always sure how to do it. We're not always sure how to get there, but let's have the song of our future echo out in our lives now. Let's apply the reality of the gospel to all our lives, and especially this issue, knowing we have a long way to go, but there will be a day when every nation, tribe, tongue, and language will sing of the gospel in joyful unity. That goal will be reached because God will make it so for his glory. Don't you want to play your part? Let's do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for everyone here, for this body of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom in holding to the gospel, believing the gospel, being humble in the gospel, loving in the gospel, being courageous with the gospel. And that we, our church, all your churches, all your people could glorify you um, in speaking the truth about reality and holding up the truth for salvation and providing um, the resources to show grace, to be transformed, to reach across to the other, to be unified in Christ. We want this for you, Lord, for your cause and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.